Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the Lion's Den in Monument, Colorado, and I am here with a friend and a new friend, Mark Poindexter, Holy Smoker here in Colorado Springs area, and his son-in-law, Joffrey. I'm going to need your full name again, because... My full name is Lubanga Olara Joffrey. Lubanga? Olara. Olara. Joffrey. Joffrey. Yes. And you told me what that meant. My name meant God save Joffrey. God saves Joffrey. Yes, my parents gave me that name. So in Africa, you grew up in Uganda, correct? Yes, I grew up in Uganda. And you don't have family names per se from what Mark was telling me before we started. Yeah. Like, like, like my last name's Ryder and his last name is Poindexter. Yeah, in my tribe, we don't have a family name. So parents give you names depending on the situations and how you were born and when you were born. So they basically give you the names depending on the situations. Well, this is going to be a great interview. I'm really excited about it because there is a story behind you and where you have been that intersects with something that I'm sure a lot of people remember from seven, eight years ago. And so we'll get to that in a minute. But first, first question I always ask, what you smoking? Yeah, right now, actually, I used to smoke cigarettes and I still smoke cigarettes. Yeah. And my father-in-law taught me how to smoke cigarettes for all the time that he has come visit us in Uganda. Yeah. And I enjoy cigarettes so much and uh, smoke different uh, brand but this brand i'm smoking this morning it's called luciana lucione luciane <laughs> the one-off I, I really like it it's yeah re- it's really good i'm enjoying it a lot yeah that's one of my favorites that we got from howard at lucione mark what you got yeah i've also got a lucione garagiste 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 and i have to tell you this is the first time steve i've had this and it's real nice it's starting really nice and smooth it's a full body that i like yeah this is the last few that howard at lucione has given us i've got a couple more in my humidor and i have a garagiste as well and so this is my first garagiste that i've smoked from lucione and I'm liking what I got so far. It's a big, big stick. Obviously, it kind of fits the name. Garajiste. Garajiste. So. I like it. All right. Joffrey, you are from Uganda. And tell me about what it was like growing up there. So I, am, I was born in Uganda. And I grew up in Uganda. I come from northern part of Uganda. And growing up in Uganda, I grew up during the time of war. All mm. the children and the people of my age mates are both born and grew up in the time of war. How old are you? I am 33 years old right now. Okay. Yeah, and so I grew up in the village. My parents are farmers and we grew up farming as type of food and that's how we grew up. So growing up in Uganda, it's been a kind of like a challenge to our region and to our life as growing up. And so my parents had uh, 16 children. Wow. Yeah, they had, it was a big yeah. family. Yeah. yeah. We were a big family. A big family even for Africa standards, yeah. I would assume. <laughs> yeah. We lost 10 of our children and we are six mm. living. Okay. And some of my siblings died before I was born. Mm-hmm. What number were you in that order? I can't even tell what number I am because we have six that are living and raising on the tens. On the six that are living, I'm number three. Okay. And it's interesting, Steve. Joffrey says he's 33, but that's an assumed age. The birth dates aren't important to their tribe. So, for instance, when he gets his birth certificate and passport, he just had to kind of guess yeah. At a birthday and an age. Wow. Yeah, my parent couldn't remember, yeah. I mean, like exactly the year I was born, but it could relate. My parents are not educated. Yeah. So they could relate with the neighbor's child that were born together with me. Yeah. In the same time, during the same year, they said, you and the son and the daughter of that person were born in the same day. Yeah. And so you kind of like estimate when you are born in that year. 
<laughs> a little bit crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. So your parents are poor farmers and you're in northern Uganda, war-torn area. So kind of paint the picture for the listener of what that was like growing up in a war-torn country, really. Steve, you say the word poor. I guess as we think about it here in the West, as far as money, yeah. but actually they're very wealthy. What? Well, okay. it, when you consider how much land Joffrey's father owns as the head of the clan. So it's just an interesting comparison of what, yeah. how we think of poor and they might think of poor. So maybe Joffrey can talk about that. Yeah, we actually, the way we call ourselves, French ourselves into like poor and rich yeah. is depending on the resources that you have. And that is basically the land. How much land you have, it's how much rich you are. Okay. And so my parents have a very big, huge piece of land. And out of all that, they have over 200 acres. Okay. And out of that, me, I was chosen as the heir of the, the family. Yeah. And I have uh, 100 acres of my personal land. So it's quite a big space. So what does that land look like? It's it- just a farmland, you know, I can't afford to farm all the part of the land. Yeah. So some are just like laying around there empty and it's just full of trees and grass. Yeah. And I just farm part of it that I can manage to maintain. So you have 100 acres in northern Uganda. Yes. That, are you actively going back there to manage that land? Yeah, that is my dream. My dream is to move back to my homeland and do more farm work and use the land for other things that gods allow us to do. Now, in Africa, here in the United States, we hear occasionally about child soldiers and about organizations that are kidnapping kids and training them to be soldiers. You've been kidnapped. Yes. Multiple times. Yes. Take the listener there. How does that happen? What goes on? That kind of stuff. I just want to talk about in details. I was a child soldier and I was captured four times by the LRA. It's called Lord Registan Hammy, uh, led by Coyne, Joseph Coyne. And we here, we here in America pronounce that Coney. And at the beginning, I kind of mentioned where your story intersects with something that a number of listeners will probably remember back in 2012 when a nonprofit called The Invisible Children came out with a documentary and this social media push that went viral beyond viral about trying to capture Joseph Coney, as you pronounce it, Coin. Yeah. And you were captured by his organization, the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army. Yeah. Yeah, I was captured by them. You know, growing up in northern Uganda... My district is one of the most affected districts, and the second best for the LRA was in my district, of Kitgum district, yeah. where I come from. And so we grew up sleeping in the bush, and because it was safer to sleep in the bush than sleeping at home. And so during the day, we stay in the bush, and my parents, they come at home, they cook food, and they bring us food in the bush. So when you say staying in the bush, were you like in tents? Were you in little makeshift shacks? Were you in a little lean-to? Were you just sleeping on the ground or in trees? Or what did that look like? Yeah, we basically climbed trees to observe, to see around. Yeah. Like because this group of rebels are everywhere. They come at any time, at any point. So you find that it's when you are in the bush on top of the tree you are able to see far and see if they're coming and you find your ways around so we could dig after digging we would just like stay under the big trees and when the food comes we eat food and my parents they come back home prepare more food like that and they bring every needs that we need in the bush so life was more staying in the bush than staying (laughs) at home how old were you when you started sleeping out in the bush? I started sleeping in the bush since I was born. Wow. Since I was born, when I was very young, as a baby, since I was born, it was, I just grew up in that life. So was there ever any education? Was there... There was education, but we would go to school 
for maybe a term after one term we have three terms So you find like you don't even finish like sometime in a year you don't finish a term because the school get closed when it becomes very intense. Because my second abductions I was in school with a group of kids. And so we were captured in school in a group when we were scattered and running everywhere. So we were gathered and captured. So you find the government closed the school to protect the children. So we move back home, you go back home. So studies were not stable at all. We studied for a few terms, few weeks, it's closed and you come back like that depending on how they move in your area, in your village. How were you captured the first time? The first time I was captured when I was nine years old. I was young and it was drizzling, raining a little bit. And it was in the evening when we had home. So they came and attacked our home and I was with my family. Yeah. So they came and just grabbed me from my parents, and then they just took me from that time. How did you escape? What was that time like? So I escaped when we were taken. We, as the kids, we moved to different villages, and they keep on capturing other people. And so I escaped when they sent us to get food, like chicken, to capture chicken from the neighbors. Yeah. They sent us to go and get those chickens. A group of, I was not alone, we were many. So I got my way close to my village. I ran away because I knew it wasn't safe for me to be in that group. So I found my way when we were sent, escorted with a few soldiers of the rebel to get food and bring back to the bigger group. So I decided to escape from there and ran away and came back to my village. So how did you escape? I mean, there was... I would assume an escort, if you will, an adult soldier who went with your group. Yeah. Did you just go behind a building and just take off or? I was wise enough to see because what we hear and from the people and from our parents who teach us that they kill you. And we hear about like, you know, when you are captured, your life of survival is unpredictable. So at any time you can be killed or you die in a different ways. So I didn't want to be in the group. Yeah. All, all at a, that age, I always try to see that I get myself away. So when I got that opportunity, I decided, I said, no, this is my opportunity now to run away. So when they sent me, as I was chasing the chicken, I chased the chicken and ran in the bush and disappeared. So I came and joined up with, <laughs> with my village. And then the second time you got captured was at school. Yeah, was at school. How long between when you escaped and when you were captured the second time? When I escaped, the first time I didn't stay long. I stayed maybe for only like two or three weeks only. Okay. So I came back and joined up with my family. And it took quite a few months after I was recaptured again. And so when I was actually a few years, because I was captured when I was now 11, 11 years after that. So uh, when we were captured in school, we were all tied a rope in our waist, connected to each other. Mm-hmm. So we were lined up and tied a rope connected to each other. And so we were moving to the directions where they're moving, going in that. So that one I stayed for a few months, about maybe four months around there. Then when the group of government soldiers who attacked us, as they're exchanging fire, so they had to cut the rope between us to split us into a group because we couldn't run. We were all tied in one mm-hmm. group. Yeah. So I dis- me and a friend that were tied close, not really a friend, but somebody yeah. I know at school, yeah. we were close to each other. So the rope between us and other people were all like split up. So we were running everywhere. So I decided to run with my friend. And my friend was a little bit older than me. And so he told me, let's run away. So we ran with our rope in our waist and we joined to the village. We left the group for a few kilometers away. And then we joined the village and we entered the home and we found some people who helped us and untied the rope in us, and then they asked us the village where we come from, and then we were taken to the LC1 of that village, and the LC1 and the defense escorted us 
to our village. The LC1? Yeah, the local council one chairman okay. of the village. Yeah. Yes. So escorted us to our village with the defense. How far away were you from your village? Maybe about 15 kilometers away. Okay. Yeah. Steve, it might be interesting for Joffrey to describe what his village looks like and what his parents' compound is like. Yeah. Kind of paint that picture for the listeners. Yeah. My village, we build a grassed house and grassed houses like for the young ones and our parents. So my parents have their room in one house, the grass house. Round, we yeah. build a round house. The grass hut. Grass hut, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. So, made of mud. Yeah, made of yeah. mud, yeah. yeah. Yeah, made of mud. So my parents, they have their room. And we, as the kid, when you're still young and not married, as a young boy, we sleep in one house, in one room. Up till, like, you come to an age when you are close to a age of getting married, that's when you have your personal, you build your personal hut, personal house. Of mud and grass. Of mud and grass. And wood, I would assume, to kind of help. Yeah. Yeah, to, yeah. For, yes. for the roof. Yeah, so we have a big compound, like, surrounded by all these hut houses around, surrounded all, and a big compound in the middle where we sweep every day. Uh, every day we sweep and we maintain and make it clean. Yeah, Steve, when I visited their compound, it is immaculate. It is so clean. The dirt is raked, as Joffrey said. Yeah. And it's just something that I've never seen before. These people just, that's how they live. And it's just like you go out and you garden and you cut your grass and you make your yard look nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's different type of structures, but it's beautiful. Wow. Okay. So you escaped the second time. Yes. I escaped the second time, came back to my family again. How long before you were captured the third time? The third time I stayed for about two years at home with my parents, continuing with the studies, going to school, coming back. But it reached a point whereby it became very intense that the rebels were everywhere. Mm. And my village, as being close to the border of South Sudan, we are close to the border of South Sudan and about to breast. So when they leave from the base to come, to the village, to the community. My village is one of the closest villages they come in through. So we were now living, sleeping in the bush again, as usual every day. And so now the soldiers, the government soldiers, were moving, patrolling and moving everywhere. And so the third time they captured us is when they attacked we are close to the barracks, the government barracks. So they came and raised the barracks, uh, the government barracks. And my village is part of my parents' land are taken by the barrack, the detached for the government soldiers are in it, building it. Mm-hmm. So it just came a sudden we were in the compound with our parents. We just ate lunch and we were just now relaxing. So we just had the bullet shot. And it was like too much. So we started running. And as we were running to the bush, we came along the group of the rebel that like put us on gunpoint, the person on gunpoint, and we both stopped with all my friends that we were running with. So they tied us there and were running with them. They gave us some of the luggage to carry. And so the bullet was still firing, they were still firing the bullets, and so we ran with them as they put it on the gunpoint. There were a group of like maybe five people. So we went with them and then we joined up with the bigger group that has so many people that we found inside there. There was a lot of people. So we moved with them and then that one now I stayed a little longer. For the third time I stayed a little longer because they moved us to their base, they touched, that was deep in the bush. And when we reached there, actually on our way, it took us about three days to walk to where the base was. So when we reached there, we found a big slash compound in the bush there with like small, small grassed huts in, in it, like so many houses of soldiers and so many people were there. Yeah. Yeah. So the first day we stayed and the second day, 
they gave us like you know cutting firewood going a bush cutting firewood slashing in doing all those work and then after three days they started training us how to operate the weapon how to operate the gun they started training us to become yeah. their soldiers so we started that up till like we graduated after like two weeks yeah we graduated and then they started sending us. We were not given guns at that point. We were trained how to operate it, but we were mm. not given a gun. So they gave us machetes, pangas. They gave us the pangas. And we joined up with the group of like the soldiers who were already having weapons, guns. And they told us to go to the villages. They keep on capturing other people. But our work was to carry luggages and also recaptured other people. Mm. So we joined up with the group and we started moving and we were doing that for quite some time. How they, old were you around this time? I was, I would say maybe around 14. Why did they kidnap kids? And was it only boys? Were they also capturing girls? Girls, boss, boss girls and boys are all trained to be soldiers. So all captured, not only boys, but even girls. So both of us were trained in fact, Joffrey has told me that the girls were better fighters than the boys. Oh, yeah. But Why? Girls were the great fighters in the bush because they never give up and they were very powerful fighters. And more than they are very strong hearted. And you find we were exchanging fire with the government soldiers. Yeah. Like they are yelling and making these halam. There's a traditional halams that I don't know if you have ever had that. Yeah, the kind of screaming, the kind of that screaming, they do. yeah, things, yeah. and you know, banging the jerrycans and all that, and exchanging fire. So those were very powerful fighters. But why capture kids? From what I know, is capturing kids feel like kids as growing up have the potential and energy to fight, and so they are capturing the kids because they are growing up as uh, strong soldiers. And so maybe we are building up the group the numbers of the group and the strength of the young men and young ladies. What was the goal of Joseph Coney and the Lord's Resistance Army? What did they ultimately want? It's really hard to know because we as a private soldiers, we're not allowed to ask questions about that. So we don't really know what the goal is. And so we just like do things out of command. When they command you to do, that's how you do it. When you ask questions, you're killed. So no one is allowed to ask any question about anything, about why are we fighting, what we're fighting for. So nobody knows what we're fighting for, except maybe those who are so close to him. That to me just sounds so counterintuitive because when you look at the great rebellions throughout history, whether they be communist rebellions, socialist rebellions, or even rebellion like we had here in America against Great Britain, there are reasons and they're trying to get people to buy in it's amazing that Joseph Coney grew the LRA to the point where it became the subject of this documentary in 2012 by Invisible Children, that it became this great threat, if you will, to the stability in Central Africa like that yeah. by, by not letting people buy in and by killing people who ask questions. What the heck? Yeah, it was crazy. I mean... You don't know what you're fighting for, and you don't ask why you're fighting. But it's a fighting for freedom, but I don't know what kind of freedom that was. And through killing people, and it's just been crazy. It's been really crazy. So how did you escape the third time then? The third time I escaped also the same through front line. I escaped on the front line. We went and attacked one of the trading center and the soldiers surround us. And so they were fighting. They were exchanging a lot of fire with the, the government soldiers. So it became a skill that we lost that war and we were scattered everywhere. And yeah. so each and everyone runs in the directions where you feel safe. So I also decided maybe this is my time again to get myself away. So I ran all night from that front line. I ran and then I got lost because I didn't know where we were and the village was not familiar to where I know. So I decided to also just like run. 
But we do know that when you go and join to the village yourself because you are reported to the chairman of that village and then they take you back home to yeah. where you come from. So I rent and then I removed my uniform because when they see you in uniform, you might come across the government soldiers and by mistakes they may shoot you mm -hmm. when they don't recognize you faster or you don't have a chance to explain yourself that moment. So I decided to remove the uniform that I had and I dropped everything there and put on a civilian and then I met like a group of women who were also running away <laughs> from that area. And so I ran up with them and they gave me food, they took care of me. And they said, where do you come from? They asked me and I told them where I come from. And so they said, okay, we're going to take you to the chairman. And so they took me to the chairman again. And then the chairman took me to the district representative on the side of the government, Hami. Yeah. So they took me there and then they drove me to my village. And then I joined up with my parents again. And Joffrey, that was very dangerous to escape because if you were recaptured, what was the consequence? Oh, you would be killed immediately. When you escaped and they recaptured you, you are killed immediately. So obviously none of the four times you were captured, they knew that you had been a part of the organization prior. Yeah, that's what happened with the fourth time. Well, Joffrey, just to be clear, who would kill you if you were caught? Now, if you are caught, they would make a parade if you were a soldier. These, these are the rebel soldiers. These are the rebel soldiers. Yes. They, they would make a parade and everyone gathered and you are killed in front of everyone as an example to other people not to escape. So your fellow soldier would kill you in front of everyone who is there. One of your fellow soldiers. Your fellow soldiers. And they will kill you a very terrible death. They will cut you into pieces oh. from your tongue, your ears, your nose. So you'd be tortured. Pieces, 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 till death, till you die. So you, you would be killed a very terrible death. I've seen so many people during my time there that tried to escape and they were recaptured and they were killed. And I can't even explain how painful that is. I would assume that you do, but do you actually realize the hand of protection that was on your life to be captured four times, three of those, if they found out you would be killed? God for sure was protecting. At that moment, I didn't have a personal relationship with God and I would just live as surviving each and every day. So I was living a life of survivors, feel like, oh, I survived and all that yeah. and feel like I was doing all this by myself. Yeah. But I got to see that a lot when I came for the first time when I escaped and came back and saw how much God was there, presence during all those times that I was captured and still live and survived even among those who are recaptured and killed. And that's bring me to the first time I was captured. The first time I was captured, now I was recognized. So they recognize me now from that. And I really see that that was really good because they wouldn't have killed me immediately from that first time. Yeah. So they could recognize me. The group that captured me recognized me, who I am. Yeah. And they asked me if I was captured before. And I tried to deny that I was not captured anymore. Maybe someone resembling looking like me. Yeah. And so they kept on saying, if we find the truth, you know the answer. So that's what they told me. And in that, I was just living just at any time knowing that I'm going to be killed. So more on like the first time that I was captured, they took me away from Uganda and they moved, shifted me to a different group in South Sudan. Okay. So I lived in South Sudan. The first time I was captured, I stayed for five years. And most of the time I was in South Sudan, Congo, and Uganda. But I was totally moved from the group that were operating in Uganda to the group in South Sudan. To keep you further away from your village and For, your family and all that. Further away from Uganda because yeah. now they could recognize me. Yeah. 
Yeah, so they moved me to that group. And this is the fourth time that, that you were is, captured? That, that, is that you were moved to? To South Sudan. Wow. Yeah, to South Sudan. So, all right. How did you end up in Kony's house? Because you basically told me that you were actually his personal chef. Yeah, when I was in South Sudan, yeah. I was first in the hand of one of tenant major that was a commandant by that time. So I was in his hands. And so I was, first of all, cooking for his wife. So they came for an operation in Uganda. And they left me with other guards, but I was in his hand and cooking for his wife. So my duty was to go collect firewood, go in the bush and hunt for animals. Mm-hmm. I shoot animals and bring food home and basically cook for his family. And his family, also his wife, I saw there, but also I have a few kids that were also there. So basically I was cooking for them. Now, the first time that I was captured, I was captured with my sister. And my sister was older than me. So my sister, she's one of his wife, kind of have many women. But my Coney sister- has many wives. Many wives. And so my sister your sister is one, is one of them. Is one of them. Still to this day? Still up to now. So when this group came to the operation in Uganda, the group that were left, I was in a life whereby I don't do the patrol, I don't sleep and, you know, at night and all that. So I was living in a good life. So it was about like a jealousy among our own crew. A group of boys who just like plan on me that I need to be moved from the position where I was. So they made up a story. So when these men came back from the operation, they told the men that I was telling them that I wanted to escape and getting their ideas and I was forcing them to escape with me. So they formed up a group against uh, they, the story against me to get me killed and to get me out of the positions where I was. So out of pure jealousy, they made up a story about they made you. They made up stories about me against me. So the men also in that wanted to find the truth. So I was arrested in there and tied upside down. I was tied three piece. My leg was connected to my hands and my head facing downward. They tied me on top of the tree, on the branch of the tree in the compound. So they started interrogating me, giving me a lot of canes. They beated me a lot. Yeah. And I became unconscious because they tied me for about six hours that I was just like, my head was down. Yeah. And so I still stood to my truth that I never shared with this man anything about escaping and all that. So when they couldn't find the truth, they continued beating me, beating me. Up till I came to unconscious that I can't even remember what I was saying and what it was at that time. So one of the boy that really felt a heart that is where betrayed this man for nothing. He ran because, you know, in that main base, we have the detached that is surrounding the main base. Yeah. So there's a group of soldiers that, you know, is surrounded in a detached. So uh, where my sister and Connie himself, they're about like maybe 15 minutes away yeah. from our detached. So this young man ran to my sister and reported over there, that your brother is going to die if you don't respond faster. So he ran. So one, so one of the young men that what, betrayed you, yeah, that, made, could, that made up this lie about you, yeah, got second thoughts, yeah, and ran to your sister. Yeah, he ran to my sister and told my sister that, and my sister reported to his husband with his coin. Yeah. So he reported to and said, this is the situation where my brother is. So he served the group of soldiers that are called special forces that are only protect uh, him Yeah, and the big man. So they sent about five people and came and got me out of this interrogation place. And I was unconscious. I didn't even know I was carried from that place. So they took me to my sister and my sister and the husband and the group, they treated me 
So they started treating me there for about two weeks that I felt like recovering. I was moving on a stick, yeah. holding a stick, moving on a stick. So they started, you know, testing if I'm now gaining my strength. I started getting my energy and getting better. So they could give me a free time to walk a little bit, come, to walk a little bit, come. But that is deep in the bush where yeah. the main base were. In South Sudan. In South Sudan. So when they now saw I was strong enough, they asked me if I was now strong enough and all that. So they gave me one of the escort to run with me and test if I'm strong enough. So we ran about a few kilometers and came back and they found I was strong enough. So they gave me back the weapon and everything. And so they called for a general, general assembly. And we gathered everyone from all these different detached. And all the group that were from Uganda were also back. They also came back. So everyone was there. So over a thousand of people were gathered. Yeah. And then they started stressing that, where did this come from? So they called all, uh, where the issue came from, they called these boys. And always said, ah, it was me with this. And so there were about like seven boys mm-hmm. who were in this plan. And so when they called them, they said, we want to set an example to all of us that this, you here, you are brothers and sisters, and you're not allowed to betray, you are to work together and not to betray each other. Yeah. So unfortunately, all these boys were killed. The ones that lied about lied you. Lied about me. They were killed in front of people. Terrible death. So all of them were killed. And that is how I got to live in the hands of Khan himself. Yeah. So from there now, I was moved to his sections, battalion, and I was now in his hands. So my monitoring with my sister, uh, she's also a soldier. And so I was living now in his hands. So started cooking for my sister, going hunting and all the same. So went into different operations and went through so many front lines during those times. But I got to escape when we came close to the border of Uganda. And we were attacked by both Sudanese army and Ugandan army. So we were attacked and it was a big fight. It took us about over one and a half day fighting because we started like exchanging fire at around five in the evening. And all night we were exchanging fire. Up till the next day, uh, around 10, when it now became like really, really intense, we couldn't now. We ran, we were running out of bullets and everyone was just now commanded to withdraw. And so I decided to run and I, ran and decided to surrender myself to the government soldiers' side. Yeah. So I surrendered myself and they got me. But one thing about that, which is so come to me, is that I never felt that because surrendering in the military is not something that you can do anyhow. Yeah. And there's no guarantee for safety when you surrender. Yeah. So I was afraid, but because of that situations, I felt that I needed to, because other ways I may not survive. So in the group that the government soldier side group that I surrendered myself to, when they got me, there were some few, actually funny thing, there were some few of like the white soldiers, and there were American soldiers yeah. who were part of those. Uh, but I didn't know by that time that these were like American soldiers, and I didn't know. But I came to know later that there were also some few of the group, uh, American soldiers were helping the Ugandan yeah. government soldiers to come the war. So I felt a little bit safe when I saw, I said, I think I will be safe because during our time in the bush, they used to tell us all the time that when you give yourself to the other side, to the government side, the soldiers, and if they capture you, they kill you. And there were some few tips that they could play for us, how some of our people were being tortured when they escaped. But there were no truths about that. I think it was something that was reformed. 
because I was formed by them yeah. to, to, to brainwash scare. us, yeah. to not think of escaping and all that. Yeah. So we could hear that and we could get really scared that you can't escape. It's not safe that side and it's not safe anywhere. So yeah. you just have to live your life there. It's not safe to escape. If they capture you again, they're going to brutally kill you. They it's not safe you. to surrender to yeah. the opposing forces because they'll kill you. They will kill you, yes. So we could hear those steps when they play them and they could tell us that. And we had no need, I mean, feelings or hearts to escape that yeah. moment. But when I did that and saw those few white soldiers who were with that, I thought, I think this is a safe side. So I decided to surrender to them and then they welcomed me very well. They took me, after the change, they took me to the barracks. We were given under the Amnesty Commission, the Red Cross program, that the Amnesty Commission just were hosting the people who escaped from the war. And it was a big, I found so many people, actually among some of the people that I found in the base, in Gulu, that was in Gulu, uh, as a headquarter for the Amnesty Commissions. I found some of the people that I knew when I was there in the bush. So I felt, oh yeah, I think I'm now safe here. So I stayed at a rehabilitation center for about six months and they started to, they, we went in our radio stations to announce and also they interviewed us. So we went several times and they were calling for the parents of we who have just come, like if they are there, they should come and report and check on their child. But unfortunately, on my side, they couldn't find my parents. My parents were displaced. They moved out of Kitgum to a mid-central area of Uganda, that's Masindi district. So they moved and resettled there in a farm where they were welcoming the refugees from the north. So my parents moved there and during that time they didn't have phone. There was no phone, no communications. Yeah. And in that, because this one of the front line that we went into, that was so many of our people, guys died. And among that one of my cousins died in it. And so one of the village boy that escaped from that war, when came home and reported, I didn't even know that, came and reported to my family that I was killed. But it wasn't me, it was my cousin that, cousin. Was, that died. Yeah. So he came and told my family that I was dead. So my family wanted to protect the rest of us and my siblings by moving away from my village. So they moved further south, they moved away further from south. the conflict. Yeah, away from this conflict, that was safer. Yeah. So they move away there. And they don't know I exist. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, they cried for me, they buried me, they know I'm dead. Yeah. So when I escaped, no one was like paying attention. Looking for you. Yeah, looking yeah. for me. And very few people could listen to radio in their homes. Very people had radio and very people could listen to their radio. So even if those who he could hear, they still don't believe that it's me. Could be someone who shares the name and someone different. So nobody came for me. So you had no idea where your parents were? We had no idea where my parents were. No, no idea, any relatives, anything the, like that? Relatives were there, but also people were scattered everywhere. They so they didn't know track. where your parents went? Yes, they don't, know, they don't know where. They went to my village, and the people who knew my parents left the village, told them that your parents went somewhere in Masindi, but we don't know exactly where they are, and we don't know how to communicate with them. How old are you at the time? I was now old enough. I think I'm maybe 20. I was in okay. my 20 now. Okay. 19, maybe 1920. I was around there now. Yeah. Yeah. So I got really discouraged. And what year was this? That was in 2005. Okay. Yeah, 2004. Two at the end of 2004 coming to 2005. So well before so, the 2012 Coney video. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I got so discouraged and that, you know, where is now my life in that? And my parents don't even, we don't even know where, you know. Yeah. I, and so they gave me some few options of like going back to school, staying at a business center as they still investigate and find out where my families were. Go back to school under the sponsorship of the Red Cross or MNS commissions. But I all joined the, the Ugandan military, yeah. the government side. So I just felt like, you know, in school, I don't know where to start from. And because I'd not been in school for long. Yeah. 
And so I decided to join the Ugandan side, military. Mm -hmm. Up till it came to a point whereby one of our family friends, who used to be my family friends, started to work with Red Cross. And he heard about me through the radio and he said, this must be the son of Alfred. And he started stressing me up. And he came up to the barracks after retrieving all my files. So he found out it was me. And I could recognize him and he could recognize me too. Yeah. Yeah, because he used to come home as a family friend. He's, yeah. he's an old man. So in that, he requested for me. He said, I would find out where my parents are, and you got to need to see your parents. And I don't know where your cousin, well, one of my cousins used to work at uh, the National Park, which is actually about maybe four hours away from where my parents live, the National Park called Maxion Falls. So he requested, they gave me a leave away, and I went and visited him. And that is when... I met him, and he also didn't know where my parents live now in the new place in Masinde. Yeah. He didn't know exactly where they live. So he said, you stay with me up till like we find out and all that. So he gave me three years of study leave. So in that process, I decided to desert myself away from the military because that's not what I want to do in my life anymore. So in that, I stayed with him, went back to school, and God was really <laughs> present in all these situations that they went to a game reserve, which was just like opposite on the eastern part of Uganda. And as they were driving back, you know, in Uganda, we have this market on the roadside. Yeah. So the parked vehicle stopped and people were doing few shoppings at that market. So my parents, that is also the market that the village where they live is close to that market. And that is the market they do shopping. So they also came and shopping. So they just ran... He went into my parents from there in that market. But he couldn't tell them that I am alive because my parents don't know. No one knows. Okay, the whole family knows that I am not living. So yeah. he couldn't just abruptly tell them from there. But he only told them, he said, I have a gift. It was coming toward Christmas. He said, I have a gift for you guys. And I will deliver that gift on Christmas Day. Oh. <laughs> yes. So he was crazy. So when he came back, he said, I met your parents. I actually met your parents. And they told me the village, he got the connection, the farm, well, the owner of the farm had the farm phone. And so he's, they were communicating. So on the 24th, coming to it, the next day is Christmas, we traveled down to Monsende, where I'm the village where my parents now live. Yes. And I remained in the car, in the vehicle, and so he went and spoke with them. We went with some few people and he, all the preparations of Christmas and all that was there. So he told them, are you ready to receive the gift now? And yeah, yeah everyone was excited. So he came and opened the car and I got out of the car. And I came, my parents could recognize me. They couldn't recognize me in that moment. And so when my mom just like saw me, okay, they were, I think they were seeing, but they couldn't still believe that it's me there. So everyone just fell down in tears. But it was a tears of joy and in yeah. that. So that's how I reconnected back with my family and um, started to live with them. But the challenge that I got in during that time is that I felt like I don't belong to that family again because... Of what you saw, what you lived through. Yeah, through all that. And my brother, who was uh, full-time with my family, I felt like was more connected to my parents than I am. So I felt a little bit lonely and, you know, isolated mm -hmm. during that time. But my parents really loved me so much and all that. But deeply in my heart, I could see that, you know, I was buried and I don't think that I belong to this family anymore. Mm -hmm. So that connection was, you know, there. But... God was really powerful that he brought the connection back to me and my family. And my family loved me so much that I saw that it took me quite some time to just like feel at home, yeah. to feel peace and feel at home. It took me quite some time. But in that, I started going to church. I gave my life to Christ. And when I gave my life to Christ, I started going to church. And at the farm, there's a church, which is just like next to my parents. So I started going to church. But when I started going to church, the challenge I got 
going to church is that when some of the messages were shared, you know, talking about like, do not kill, do not do this, do not that, and all that, all the Ten Commandments and, you know, all the churches, yeah. you know, bros and life and all that, it became a little bit strange to me that I felt like I don't belong to church anymore again. You know, I felt like, you know, if all that is the purpose of, you know, being in the church, then I don't feel like I, I belong there anymore. Yeah. So I left, I stopped going to church. And I started hanging out with my friends, you know, going at the trading center, drinking and playing pool and, you know, all that. But God really showed himself to me through all that because the days that I don't go, because on Sunday that I'm supposed to go to church, I go with my friends. Yeah. And so the days that I don't go with my friends, I hear that some of them got into a fight. They were arrested by the police and all that. And God protected me through that too. That he didn't want my life to go in worst. He protected me through the life in the bush and brought me now to this life. He wanted me to like really see him at that moment. Then I just finally saw that I need to surrender and give up my life to him. And so years after that, I had to renew my faith yeah. in Christ again. and started to believe in him and started to trust him and I, God started bringing a lot of memories in my brain, in my heart. Started bringing a lot of memories. Look at all this moment that I have protected you to mm -hmm. this day, that all that. And that is when I started seeing him presenting himself to me. And all this time, he has actually all been in me. So when I went back into my memories, I saw all those times that he protected me, that I felt like I was surviving. Yeah. But he was actually taking care of me and after now I fully give my life to him and I fully surrender and knows that I need to give up my controls and need to surrender I need to learn I learned to surrender that it was the best thing that I could do is the opposite way of surrendering in the military yeah. and surrendering to Christ yeah. and so I felt so safe now and I feel Peace, and I'm going through a counseling right now that has been. I can very imagine. I, I can imagine everything that you saw. That there are things that you need to work through. And yeah. one of the things that Mark had told me was that this time here in Colorado Springs, is in large part to get that kind of healing. Yeah, I've always been trying so much to seek for counseling and help. Yeah. But it has been very difficult in Uganda because i still struggling with the issues of trusting. Yes. And so even the few opportunities, we don't have many opportunities of counseling in Uganda, but yeah. the few opportunities that I could hear of, my heart was afraid to go because I you don't fully trust, you know, the Ugandan counselor yeah. for the security issues and, you know, how far the information goes. And so I was, I've been trusting people for all that because I've been betrayed so many times during my time in the bush. So yeah. I, do, I do still have the fear of that. This is my first time visiting the United States. States. Yeah. And I felt like it has been so helpful that I'm going through this counselor that I can trust, that I can share all my hearts with. And through all my meetings with him, going through processing all these passes has been very helpful. And I feel so much peaceful and strong and I feel you know I feel like I can trust someone so how did you meet Mark's daughter yeah that is uh, a <laughs> yeah, amazing story when I joined up with my family at that farm they have different projects it's an organization called family empowerment Uganda that is in there so I started volunteering with these organizations because this place that my parents live and um, is led by a guy called Richard. So he has these different program, farm projects and business training projects. Yeah. So I went through the business training that I was interpreting for the team. He partnered with the organizations here in the United States, actually in Colorado. So every year 
the group from United States come to teach business uh, to the local communities how to start a business and how to manage a business. And I was interpreting for the group, mm -hmm. the team that come from the United yeah. States in the local language. Yes. Yeah, because all these communities surrounded us were the displaced community from northern Uganda. Yeah. And so I was interpreting into a local language the training. Yes. And so one of the training in 2015, one of the group that came was Max's daughter and my mother-in-law. And I was interpreting for them. Yeah. That's how I met Max's daughter. And uh, we fell in love. And after here, we got married. And God has blessed us with, uh, we have five children. But in that fight, we have two biological kids, and we are expecting the third biological child next year, May. So uh, two of our, of our adopted ch uh, children, there's one uh, child, our elder our child uh, called Caleb, is 13 years, was unable to come with us because of the visa issue. And then we have the fostering daughter called Rihanna, she's nine. And she was also unable to come with us. But hopefully, as uh, the paperwork and the visa and adoption process finish smoothly, hopefully we'll, next time we'll all, both family will all come and visit. How long are you going to be here on this trip? I've been here for three months now, and we're leaving on Tuesday. Oh. Back to Uganda. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Mark, what has this been like for you? to have your daughter here, your son-in-law, this time to probably, I'd say, get to know him at a level that you haven't in the past. Steve, it's been great. They've brought two of our grandkids, Taya, who's two and a half, and Ezra, who has just turned a year. So we got to celebrate his one-year birthday back in October. But it's been wonderful to get to know Joffrey and to hear Joffrey share his story with so many people in fact, it's been very good for Joffrey, and part of his healing is to share this and to share with people how much God has been part of his life. But as you said, you know, I've really gotten to know Joffrey a lot better, having been around him now for three months, and to show him what the United States is like. We got to travel in uh, D.C. for a week, but it's been a joyful time. You know, Anna has been back to visit a few times since she's lived in Uganda, but this is the first time that Joffrey has gotten to come. So it's been it's been fabulous to have them here. We did yeah. get to share Thanksgiving together last year in Uganda when Ezra was born, and then we just got to share Thanksgiving again together. So we had yeah. a Uganda Thanksgiving. We kind of brought that tradition to Uganda. Yeah. And his, his, yeah. the, the people there, in fact, I took a 10-pound ham with me last year. We got yeah. to have another ham yeah. and, and turkeys this year. But it's been wonderful, and it's, it's going to be very sad to see them go. But we'll be back in Uganda in May to welcome the new grandchild. The, the new baby. Yeah. So, Joffrey... You're heading back to Uganda. What do you want to do with your life? Where do you feel like God's calling you? Where do you think you're going? What are some of those passions that he's placed in your heart? Yeah, I feel like God has put a very deep dreams in my heart that has been always as a reminder into my heart. I really want to do, uh, you know, as he leads me. And one of my biggest dream is I want to move back to my homeland, yeah, and I want to speak and give hope to these young men and young women who have come from the war, mm. who have lost hope, because I was once in that feelings that I lost hope in my life, and at first I thought, you know, there's nothing to do more with my life, you know all that, and I can't imagine like how much, and I thank God that He has gave me so many opportunities to get help yeah. in different ways. Yeah. And I can't imagine for my brothers and sisters who are unable to yeah. seek this opportunity and have this help with their life. And I feel like these young men who have come back from the situations that I was in, they're right now, you know, just 
you know, drinking and uh, just feeling like their life is wasted, it's destroyed and it's no more. So my biggest dream to bring hope to these people back and to speak to them. Actually, I've started meeting with a few group of the men and the ladies who have been soldiers in the war with the rebel that I know, actually one just leave my neighbor, that I normally speak to them and share with them how much Jesus means to our life now. Mm. That we are both living and we both came back from these situations and we both saw death and we still came back to life. But I just feel God is leading me into that direction that I want to minister to these people, speak to them about Jesus and bring more hope back to their life again. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, we will look forward to seeing pictures of Holy Smokes Uganda Thank on you. the secret Facebook group. Yeah. Yeah, that would be really good. <laughs> that has been another special part of his time here is yeah. to join the Holy Smokes groups and meet so many different men that have really kind of inspired Joffrey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Holy Smoke. Just like to say a little bit about like the group that I've been meeting. I so I'm so thankful and so grateful, blessed by meeting this Holy Smoke group. They have given me a lot of courage, a lot of hope, and a lot of comfort and peace. And just like seeing that we don't, I mean, in my community, especially where I grew up, I I've not been seeing like you know this kind of like love that people come together checking on each other, you know, praying for each other and gathering. And it's not in my village. It's not in my community. Yeah. And it has been destroyed by the war that people don't even have time to gather together because during that time that the war was so intense that life has totally changed. And the relationship, the bondage that the family, even the family bondage is being destroyed. And so just like coming and seeing a meeting with like the only smoke group, I've learned a lot that I want to take back. I've learned like the love. I've learned the care. I've learned the heart of like brotherhood, you know, and checking on each other and just like caring for everyone. I just feel like everyone is responsible for each other and taking all cares of each other. And I just want to take that back to Uganda, that spirit and that heart of love. I want to take it back. All right. So yeah. you have a hundred acres of farmable land. I would assume tobacco grows in Uganda. Oh, very well, yeah. Yeah, tobacco so, grows so, very well. So, so yeah. are, are, are you going to grow some tobacco? <laughs> that, way we I, can, that, that way we can blend some Joffrey cigars? Yeah, seriously. I mean, like, if there's a machine, there is this possibility in the future that someone would, like, I mean, like, tobacco can grow really well. Yeah. But, like, the processing it into uh, tobacco, I mean, like, uh, cigar. Cigars. It's the only thing, but like with the growth of tobacco, the land is very fertile and people grow tobacco a lot in Uganda. And so I would really love to use some of my land to grow tobacco to supply the oily smoke. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. I personally am going to be watching very closely. <laughs> yeah. And one of these trips, Mark, you're going to have to bring back some of that tobacco. So whether it's already rolled into cigars or whether we end up yeah. rolling them ourselves yeah I, yeah I, I personally would love to have that tobacco oh yeah i would totally do that joffrey thank you so much for being on the holy smokes podcast god save joffrey thank you hey everyone before we go i'd like to talk about today's sponsor you i recently received a note on facebook that said steve i've stumbled onto your podcast and i've really been enjoying it Thanks for being a part of loosening legalism's grip on my heart. This moved me like no other message I've received thus far. You'll hear my story uh, later this month, but I came out of a very legalistic background and it nearly drove me away from the faith. So Carl, Kay, and I have a heart to take this message to more people. Right now, we're paying out of our own pocket to grow this thing. I'm paying my editors, Fidias, Fayul, and Belray, my web developer, Sangram, and I'm donating my time for interviewing, recording, etc. But if what we've done through the group, through the meetings, through this podcast has made an impact on you, please consider a tax-deductible donation. You can go to paypal.me slash holysmokesclub and make a donation there. 
As always, there's a link in the show notes. It's paypal.me slash holysmokesclub. You can be assured that your donation will be used wisely. In fact, we received a $500 donation from a podcast listener at the end of December, and I told him exactly what we're going to use that money for. 83 hours of paying Sangram to build out the back end of the website. We want to better connect holy smokers in communities and give chapters a tool to better organize. Your donations help us do that. Once again, it's paypal.me slash holy smokes club. We at Holy Smokes appreciate your listening to this edition of the Holy Smokes podcast. Please send us any feedback through our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Holy Smokes Cigar Club. That's facebook.com slash Holy Smokes Cigar Club. We really appreciate those comments and feedbacks. Thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Ryder saying do good, be awesome.